Hey coaches, this is Matt Smith, the president and founder of United Basketball Clinics. want to let you know about two great clinics we have going on later this year. The Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic, August 23rd and 24th at the legendary Hoosier Gym in Knightstown, Indiana. Vance Wahlberg, Dave Love, Doug Porter, Mike Neighbors, John Kaufman, and more will be speaking that weekend. All sessions are on the floor with live demonstration. Also, we have the Peach State Coaches Clinic in Atlanta, Alpharetta, Georgia, September 28th. Hernando Planell, Charmin White, Gene Durden, Alan Whitehart, the staff from Georgia State University, and more. Please visit unitedbasketballclinics.com to register. Early bird pricing ends August 1st. That's unitedbasketballclinics.com. Same staff discount supply. I look forward to seeing you there. Coaches, how are you today? It's Coach Kevin Furtado of the Championship Vision Podcast. Welcome to Episode 66 of the Championship Vision Podcast. Today, I have the great honor to interview Coach Mike Dunlap. Uh, in <clears throat> March 12, 2014, Mike Dunlap, a 1980 graduate of LMU, has been how, was hired as the 26th head coach of the men's basketball program. Dunlap returns to the Westchester campus with more than 30 years of college and NBA coaching experience. Coach Dunlap was the head coach of the Charlotte Bobcats for the 2012-2013 season, becoming the first coach in NBA history to win three times as many games as the year before. During that season, the Bobcats set franchise records for the most fast-break points and the least number of turnovers per game. Before arriving in Charlotte, Coach spent six years as an assistant coach in the professional and college ranks. Prior to his work as an assistant, he spent nine seasons as the head coach at Metropolitan State College in Denver, leading his teams to a pair of Division II national championships in 2000-2002 and earning NABC Division II Coach of the Year honors in both of those seasons. Coach Dunlap, whose teams went to the NCAA tournament in each of those nine seasons, posted an overall record of 248-50, and winning five Rocky Mountain athletic titles. In 2006, Coach Dunlap left Metro State to become an assistant coach with the Denver Nuggets under George Carl. In two seasons with the Nuggets, he helped the team to a 95-69 and 69 record, that including a 50-win season in 2007-2008. That was the team's first in 23 years. Dunlap then spent the 2008-2009 season as an associate head coach at the University of Arizona under legendary coach Lou Olson and the 2009-2010 season as an associate head coach under Ernie Kent's staff at the University of Oregon before joining Steve Lavin at St. John's in 2010. During the 2011-2012 season, he oversaw the day-to-day operations of the team and serves as acting head coach in all but four games while Coach Lavin recovered from surgery to treat prostate cancer. Coach Dunlap's previous head coaching experience also includes three seasons with Adelaide 36ers in Australia's National Basketball League and five seasons at California Lutheran University from 1994-1997. He led the 36ers to a 59-33 and record. 
and three straight appearances in the NBL Final Four, including advancing to the grand final game in 1995. Before going to Australia, Dunlap was head coach at Division III California Lutheran from 1989 to 1994, where his teams posted an 80-54 record and won three straight Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference titles from 1992-1994, while also advancing to the Sweet 16 in 1992-94. His college coaching experience also includes five seasons at his alma mater, Loyola Marymount, 1980-1985, one season at the University of Iowa, 1985-86, and three seasons at the University of Southern California. Coaches, this is a great honor to speak with, in my opinion, one of the best teachers of the game. You're going to get some great stuff here. You need to get your notepads out. Um, I will really enjoy this conversation. We're one of the best teachers of the game, Coach Mike Dunlap. Coach Dunlap, welcome. Kevin. Hi, Coach. How are you, Coach? I'm fine. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound like a fish in an aquarium. <laughs> um, <clears throat> how's that? Is it sometimes if no, you, you – um, I'm just messing with you. Let's roll. Let's go. Let's get it That's done. great. That's great. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, right. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you coming on the podcast on that I try to get some of the best teachers of the game. And I'm so excited to have you on because I think you're one of the best. Hey, can you can you tell us the listeners a little bit about how you got started in the game and how well, well how did you get started in your journey to become a coach? I played at uh, Loyola Marymount, and then one of the assistant coaches, his name was Carl Strong, he said, "You know, you should be a graduate assistant." And he went to the head coach, and they asked me to be a graduate assistant, and uh, there I was. So it was exactly what I wanted to do. I just didn't have a clue on how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And did you have any particular mentors and so forth along the way, or is it mainly just um, your head coach who said you had, you know, you had some great, you know, you had great potential to be a coach. Anybody else? Um, the head coach was Ed Gorgian. So full credit to him and his son, Greg was a prolific in the United States, and he had 35 All-Americans out of his high school program, I mean, and, and guys that went everywhere. He, you know, had one of those juggernaut programs in Crescenta Valley in Southern California. And so, and then, anyway, he was a mentor, and he knew John Wooden. And so, when I became a GA, he was talking on the phone with Coach Wooden. He said, hey, I got this young whippersnapper. Um, who needs some guidance and he put the phone in my hand and I had had was a camper at Wooden's camp and uh, um, he gave me an award when I was in the seventh or eighth grade a basketball award I, so I, you know I heard him talk at that banquet and got the award so it was my third encounter and he said come down to my place in Encino and I did and um, so he was a mentor I got lucky and then I went to a camp where Pete Newell Jr. was at the camp and his father went to school here uh, in uh, the late 50s. And uh, so there was a tie to his dad through his son. And so out of 
dumb luck. I, I, I jumped in on the Pete Newell big man camp and I was opening the gym when they started with eight players, Kermit Washington, Kiki Vandaway, and those guys were in there doing footwork. And I, and I opened up the gym and coach Newell needed a guy to pass him the ball. I was 21 and, and 20 years later, you know, I was still with the Pete Newell big man camp it was either a passer or a coach. And then I evolved to travel with coach and do some work with coach Newell. So those were the two powerhouses as far as people that I had uh, uh, tour relationships with. And then that expanded to George Raveling when I worked for him and he had a whole net whole host of guys and John Cheney was one of his guys. And so jumped in on that as quickly as I could. And um, so, and that just took me to Tim Gergovich and Tim Gergovich is known as the best assistant um, that ever was in the NBA. And um, I was enough to be able to go over to Vegas and watch coach Gergovich work year after year. So, yep, those were my heavy influences. And those are great influences, Coach. I'm thinking going, my word, talk about great teachers of the game. And I don't think a lot of people remember Pete Newell, a lot of the younger coaches. Is there a better, is there a better teacher of footwork or fundamentals than Pete Newell? I mean, I, I mean he was fabulous, wasn't he? Yeah, and he won a national championship, his last one at Cal. He won an Olympic Olympic gold medal and he won the NIT. And then he was given the highest award that an American has ever been given, politician or such, in Japan. And he brought the game over to Japan. And so he was an emeritus as far as a citizen over there. And he was just one of those guys, like you said, that people can miss. But he's a Mount Rushmore right there with Wooden and a little known fact is when he was at Cal and he beat Wooden uh, he never lost to him again as the head coach at Cal he won (laughs) eight in a row and in those days he ended up mentoring Wood and the press and he would take the train down and sit with Wooden for a day they exchange information much like football guys do today and uh, he was very powerful as teacher and as somebody who gave the game uh, to uh, a lot of people in the United States. And he was with the 60 Olympic team. He was the head coach, Jerry West and Oscar Robinson, all on that squad. I mean, obviously they didn't lose and they won it. He was an amazing guy and he had incredible humility, like wooden. When you're with them, what strikes you is their brilliance and their humility and that They had time for everybody. It was incredible. Yeah, and you can you can probably go on and on and about how many how many people that Pete Newell influenced just in his his big man camp, right? Yeah. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us. I mean that that was um, that was one of the best camps anywhere, right? Right. And you had eight baskets, and you typically had eight guys per basket, and then it grew from there. But you were in charge of these building blocks, and he was a part whole teacher. So you had three days of three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon. And it could be Shaq, it could be Elijah Wan, it, it was Jabbar was in there for a session. It, it was all of them. 
he touched all of them and he didn't charge. All of this was done free. And when you worked at Coach Newell's camp, you know, yeah. you, you came in on your own dime. You stayed and paid for your own food, uh, the whole deal. And it's just what everybody did. It was the purest form of basketball. And the teaching was very specific. And if you made a mistake, you would hear about it from Coach Newell behind closed doors if you weren't on your game. He was a precisionist, but it was an incredible experience. And every day you learn. In my 20 years, there wasn't a session that uh, I was a part of that um, I didn't learn a, a, a nugget. He was just dropping nuggets left, right, and center. And, uh, you know, he did it in a very – he had a very low tone of voice. He rarely raised his voice. He had a look on him that could kill, and, and he got stuff done. And, yeah, you were dealing with the most talented people in the world. And he was the first, in my opinion, that took the bigs and moved them to positionless basketball. He moved them outside to the three-point line, and they had to know how to turn and face. And there was a sequence with your pivots and uh, the moves – and you repped them out over and over again, and then you went to shadowing, and then you went to live action. And it was very specific. And it, before your very eyes, the guys would improve. And by the time that the week's end came up, I don't care who the player was, he was a lot better. And that's just his magic. Yeah, and I think people forget. Uh, I'm from California, by the way, and that's why I appreciate every all the people you're talking about. I actually grew up with uh, going to Carol Williams camps at Santa Clara. I, I, that's where I lived. Andy Locatelli, all those great coaches from Santa Clara, and um, and my dad. We grew up near Cal Cal oh, yeah, uh, Cal Berkeley. You must have run into Bud Presley. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Right. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, Knight, Knight would visit with Presley about defense. So that's how brilliant uh, Bud Presley was, a little-known junior college coach, and he put his hands all over Stan, or Jeff Van Gundy. Jeff played for him at Menlo College. And so that imprint is in, indelible. But, you know, you, you had great, great coaches at Santa Clara. I mean, now those Northern California guys were absolutely dialed in. And uh, the Mecca was Santa Clara and Carol Williams, you know, and Dick Davey and all of them. Rambus, all those guys came yeah. through that, that road. Jack Avina, they were close friends, coached at Portland. But, yeah, you're, you're hitting the nerve with me. Those guys could all coach. And I tell you, and, I, and of course, you know, I'm a small-time high school coach. Those guys, I remember Andy Locatelli, Carol Williams – Basically, I, I felt like I was their son, and that had a big impact. I mean, I, I used to ride the bus to their camp, and coach, that mentors, I don't, I don't know how many coaches do that. He was head coach of Santa Clara, and he had a huge impact on me, and that's why I'm in coaching right now because of those guys. Right, no. I mean, that to me, I think those mentors are important. Yeah, and, and you have to do it with intent. I mean, sometimes it happens that a guy becomes your mentor right. by, by accident. But in, right. this, in this day and age, you know, you, you, if a guy writes a book, go find him. You know, and if, if there's a coach that you are akin to and you like his flavor and the way he articulates and delivery and information, go be with him. That's how you learn and have that person as your mentor. 
Um, and you can measure a mentor by whether he accepts you or rejects you. If a guy is saying he doesn't have the time for you, uh, I'm not a fan of that. I, I just think that uh, as you go down the conveyor belt, you got to give back. And those guys you're talking about couldn't give you enough time or information. They were brilliant, you know, absolutely brilliant. And see, um, Carol Williams was mentored by Hubie Brown. They, they were contemporaries, but Carol, you know, was there. And there was a guy named Taylor who was an exceptional coach at USC who did pieces uh, that, you know, uh, winners, Tex winners uh, kind of emulated. And then, then I think Carol Williams grabbed that information and, and modified the flex offense. So all of those guys are intertwined. And the message is, you know, give the information back to the young guys that you get. That's the big point in the mentorship that's going on. And it's still going on. It's great. But, I mean, you want to you wanna have two or three mentors in your career that you can go to when you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, I, and um, I think we can still do it even at the high school level. I see a lot of high school coaches that are kind of – they hide information. It's like, man, we should all share more and kind of pick each other's brain. But that's a whole other podcast there, Mike. Hey, you're one of my mentors. I got to tell you, when I first, I have all your videos, I have all your books. I think I helped build your income a little bit. Um, you Thank have. God I had three kids that went through college, so you know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> I have all. I'll be honest with you. You meant a lot to me on just your matter of factness and your approach to teaching. How many things I can go on and on about your practices, your shield drill your 113, your transition, your building, all those books. And I, I want to talk to you right now about the walk through the foot because I want to really kind of start um, installing that back into my program because I think footwork is huge. Talk about that, just that segment of footwork in, your, in our practice plans. Well, it's a great way to warm up, and that was taken. A template was taken, again, a, a hybrid of the three lines of Wooden, who believed in three lines, and a sequence of teaching out of three lines. Uh, and then uh, Newell, uh, who had the footwork down, I mean, he mastered that. And so I just joined those. And then the third part of it was is that the best shifting or transfer of weight coaches it, without question are the football people on the defensive backs. They have to deal with guys that are running in the same times and you have to backpedal and defend them. So when you think about the work that a DB has to do to shift and transfer his weight, it's phenomenal. And there are these little packages that the football coaches use to not only key the shift of the weight, but, you know, uh, how, to, how to teach the eyes to steal a signal, if you will, that the baseball guys do off of the catchers to see if they can steal a sign. And it's the same thing's done. Okay, now uh, I met a couple that worked with the DBs for the Broncos when we were at Metro State and just mixed and came up with walking through the foot. Uh, but all of that stuff was thieved. Uh, and then you, you adapt it to your own personality and see if it works. And so walking through the foot was just a compilation of organizing what I stole. Yes. And I think, 
I'll be honest with you. I don't see a lot of footwork being worked on in many practices. Um, I think it's, I think it's really being neglected. Uh, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think we like in my camps today, I mean, we work a lot on jump stops, pivoting, uh, staying low things that I think are underestimated, right, Mike? Yes. Um, spot on. And you know, it's, it's not done by intent. It's just that the way the game evolves, there's so many better things that we have access to, et cetera, et cetera. And the specificity of the game uh, in terms of handlers and guys that are working with the NBA guys all the way down. Um, I think that what has gone by the wayside is just what you've talked about is just the basics of feet, front pivots, reverse pivots, stride pivots, and the transfer of weight and how to, you know, make space by slowing players down and, you know, change of pace. Something as simple as change of pace, because we all know the athletes are bigger, longer, stronger, but that athlete has to be taught how to play slow first. And then quickness will take over and through the reps, et cetera. So when you get back to feet, you're exactly right. It can, it's, it's arduous. Sometimes the, the player can take it as boring etc but you can make a game of it and kind of doll it up and 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 do it in little sound bites and that's why addressing feet at the beginning of every practice and what you're saying about getting low and wide and shifting your weight it can be done and it's pretty painless and you can warm them up that way and do the teaching at the same time i mean when the money's on the line and it's 60 all it could be 80 all and you've got a guy holding you and you're in a flex action and you're running a baseline cut and the big's going to pick for you, you've got to know how to use your hands to get that guy off of you and the transfer of your weight to go away from where the screen is so you can shoulder your guy and come off that screen to be open and make space for yourself. The official is not going to all of a sudden get involved in that. And it has to do with footwork and it has to do with deception and it has to do with transfer of weight to go really slow. And then you explode. And that is the essence of winning right there. And there wasn't anybody better in describing the essence of winning than Bill Walsh and finding the winning edge. And in one of the pages of the book, he said, Hey, people ask me all the time, the difference between good and great. And he said, I got two things for you in his answer. And he said, number one is, is that the master teacher knows the outcome before it happens. In other words, when you're running a three-line drill or you're running a cutthroat drill or you're running your fast break, you know exactly how you want that to be. And the players may not be able to do it on day one, but day 32, it all drops and it happens for you. That The great one knows how to get you there and because they already have the vision. And the second part is execution under pressure. That's the difference between good and great. There are a lot of coaches, players, et cetera, that are really good or average when there's nothing at stake. But, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, Pat Riley or whether it is Jabbar or let's go to Curry, let's go to Durant, let, you know, you, 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 you can use any name you want. You separate good from great. And those guys performed under great duress to make the shot, the call. And there it is.
Coach, tell, let, let me ask you a question. I, I want your honest. I want to ask, uh, get your honest feedback. I try to have everything game like in my practices, and my theory is, I try to, I try to do short game like scrimmage situations very quickly, and then I teach a skill. Then I go back to scrimmage. Then I reteach. I don't do drill, 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 drill. I scrimmage, teach, scrimmage, teach. Because I find like there's less slippage there and I can remember what we're teaching and so can my players. Give me some feedback on that. Well, I, I think that, you know, you use many different tools as a teacher and you just pull that tool out. So the last thing any teacher coach needs to hear is what they're doing is wrong. <laughs> I think it's right. I think it fits you. It fits the kids these days and it keeps them interested. But I do still think that you put time and score on a drill and get the same thing done. Uh, but you don't have all the time in the world, and you have to pick something or a style or a methodology. So to me, it's very, very effective. One little caveat that I would say is when you're dealing with your players, all right, or as somebody would say, working with your players and enlisting them, I think it's important to make a distinction that it- not to be in a game-like situation and say, hey, we're going to teach slow here. And I think it takes the anxiety away. And now let's say that you're just working on a simple V-cut and inside pivot foot, and you say, hey, we're going to put three minutes on the clock. We're just going to stay on the left side of the floor, and you guys are going to go at these three baskets or four baskets, and I want you to go slow. And we want to do this properly, bang. And then you go right back to heavy activity, but you've made the distinction, hey, let's slow this thing down and teach it and get it cleaned up just like you're doing. And, you know, yes. uh, but, but I think a lot of young guys and, and, and women don't make that distinction to their player. Then they get pissed when it all blows up. And, you know, I know that the mistakes I make is when I skip the five laws of teaching, tell them show them, have them show you all in slow motion. Cause then when they show you, they're telling you, did they really hear what you were teaching? Did they really see what you were teaching? Did they really feel what you were teaching? So then you, you, you let them do that slow and then correct it. Uh, okay. Hey, it's okay. We're good. We're going slow. No, 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 no. This is what I want. Bang. And then rep it out. And if you want to put time and score on that, or you just, Hey, uh, keep it to an advantage and just let them shadow it. And I say, Hey, that's really good. That's really good. And now you're on your fifth. That's really good. There's only one way that that player can perceive that. And that is a positive. As long as it's short and sharp, they're going to say, Hey, coach said to me really good five times. And they're going to feel it from you. And now you prime the pump. So when the mistake happens in live activity, you've got this bank over here where you're just killing them with what you like. And then when they make the mistake, you know, it's important to let them know that's part of the process. All right. But there's a consequence there's winning and they're losing and there's no way you should avoid the consequences of either one. Cause they got to know how to handle the winning and they got to know how to handle the losing. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it feels like I'm back listening to watching your videos again, coach. I, I just love that. I love your, 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 what is a master teacher? And I don't think we emphasize that enough in our coaching, do we? I think no, we need to no. coach. 
I mean, I, a, I just, yeah. there's yeah. a book I read on archery and uh, basically Columbia does it better than anybody else. Now, somebody at another school, the to 10 that are doing archery, uh, you know, would be upset about that. Okay. It's arguable, but at Columbia, they do it very well by national championships and you work back from there. But one of the things, the art of mastery, any book on mastery is there is a breakdown in terms of breaking a drill down or breaking down a system. And then there are these very arduous packages where you go with the part and you build. And so in archery terms, they literally are, are pulling the, the arrow back and having to hold all right, without a quiver or without, no pun intended, but without any kind of a twitch or a blink or whatever, and they have to hold for X amount of minutes, and then they increase it. And it's just this little drill you have to do. Okay, now shooting. All right, Kiki Vandaway goes two feet from the, the tip of the rim. He's got it, uh, one hand on the ball. We've all seen the drill, and he locks the elbow and snaps the wrist, and it's got to be a three swishes in a row before you rotate to the next spot. Well, the essence of that is the mastery of the shot. And there's these little packages that you build up within your shooters. And when you deal with a high, high-end shooter, you watch him or her, and you see they have these little packages that they've done. Now you go over to Curry, um, the best shooter that ever lived. Let's just go there and put that on the line. And then you watch him. And when I was at Charlotte, he would come into the gym and he had these little packages that he did before he would go to the NBA three. And he had a little cycle, Steve Nash. Whenever anybody watched Nash, he had these transfers of single foot drills. And now you see KD do. Well, that mm -hmm. came from a guy that was teaching Dirk about Dirk. And he's a, he's a physicist <laughs> over in Germany. And I watched him lecture at a camp in Pesaro, Italy. And I was over there doing a talk and there this guy shows up and he said, I was Dirk's coach. So he grabs 10 guys, you know, as demonstrators. And he, an hour later, you're going, that guy's brilliant. And, you know, he's an engineer by trade. And so my point is getting back to, you know, mastery. Uh, that's a whole different topic, you know? And like <laughs> you said, that, 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 you know, that, willingness to sacrifice see greatness has to do with there are four components but one of those components is sacrificing your free time to do these building blocks for an extraordinary amount of time while everybody else is doing something over to the left and when you go back to curry everybody says that they want to be curry but few are willing to go through his work steps like kobe Everybody wanted to join his workouts. Three days later, they packed their bags and they left Kobe. And I don't know of anybody who ever joined Kobe in his workouts that could hang. And, you know, he would go and he, if you, he said, I'll be there at four in the morning. That was traditionally Kobe's time for his workouts and his day started that way. And he had three to four time blocks that he worked during the summer. And then these guys would say, oh, I want to do court. Jay Williams was one of them. And so they say they want to jump in. He says, yeah, come on in. So there he is waiting on those guys at 4 a.m. And now they go through this, these building block things that Kobe would do for two hours. Then he would eat his breakfast. He'd do a stretch. He maybe even take a nap. All right. 10 o'clock comes around. Wham. Here he goes for another two hours and so forth. Well, 
It doesn't have to be Kobe. It doesn't have to be Curry. But what you find out in mastery and those guys that are extraordinary at what they do, it's not only talent, but you will always, always, always find an extraordinary work rate and that they're sneaking around doing these things that all roads lead the back to the gym. And there's the difference between good and great. It could be the corporate world. It could be golf. It could be basketball. But when you see those guys that are holding multiple trophies up and have the rings that in multiple ways, you go find that, go find a typical day by those guys. And they're just extraordinary. So they're mastering the little details that nobody else wants to do. Right, coach? I right. Mean, and you can show particularly them packages. Yes. Right. I, I, yes. I chased the guy to the gym today. You know, he, he you know, he's, he, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do that. And he was going for like, say, 11 days at a great rate, you know, and then all of a sudden I found out through, you know, this or that, that, you know, I said, Hey, what are you doing? Well, you know, I'm, and I said, okay, well, I mean, it has nothing to do. <laughs> I said to him, yeah, it has nothing to do with greatness. You're going to be fine, but you're going to be fine in a very average way. Bang, you know, and then a, ha a half hour later, he is just killing it. But you know, what you're also going to find behind a Ray Allen or somebody is an extraordinary human being. None of those young men or young women ever did it on their own. You know, that you dig around, you know, and it's a great cross-country team. Go look for the coach. There's a book out called Bounce. And these guys out of England were uh, competing against, at the highest level, ping pong. And, well, you found a guy who had this little club – and these kids, and he was a master teacher, and they would find their way to play in ping pong forever and a day. And one of the things they found out when the guy went to wrote the book was the walls were really close to the table. So their reaction time, when you watch it on TV, they're way back. They didn't have the luxury of that because through necessity, they had to be on top of the table. But what it created was these balls were coming over at a quicker rate and their reflexes had to be, because they were only back three feet, they, their reflexes were developed over years where by the time they were going for the gold medal and all these guys were coming out of this one area and they go, what the heck is going on? And there's this one guy who would keep that club open late at night, early in the morning, and he was just an aficionado, very humble. Nobody knew who he was, and now this author goes and finds him. And what I'm saying is, is that when you find a great, great player, go find the mother, go find the father, go find the coach, because they're there. And I'll guarantee you, when you find that coach, they're demanding. They're always demanding. And because greatness doesn't live with settling, you know. And so now when you're talking about being, you know, just a high school coach, I don't even know what that means. I mean, to me, <laughs> if you want to find a great coach, go to Georgia, go to Texas, go up into Maine, and it could be track, it could be ba baseball, it could be basketball, but you see the championships go over and over and go sit at the feet of that person, women, men, whatever it is, and you're going to get some knowledge that you didn't have. If you're willing to go find them, there's a book out called Good to Great, Jim Collins. He's written many books now, sure. but I went and found them. You know, and I listened to the guy lecture away from there were 32 superintendents. You know, I was an oddball basketball coach, but I went and found them 
and, and I needed to hear him talk because the guy's brilliant. And so I'll leave it there. But I think any coach, if they want to be great, is always on the search for somebody who has knowledge and see how they use their methods to do it. And then you duplicate that and bingo, you know, you, you, you can, you can adventure into greatness, but typically whether it's baseball, basketball, football, the one equalizer is time. How much time and discouragement is a coach willing to deal with in order to get what they want? Like all these young guys that say, I want to coach, I want to coach. And I say, well, can you hold the mop till you're 37? And they look at me and go, what do you mean? You never get what you want, but you're willing to mop the floor and you do it for 17 years and then bang, it happens. Now we look at Nurse. You look at his journey all over the world, uh, rejection, success. Yeah, he's all over. He's a mongrel. And now he makes his way to that seat. Well, he, he became a master coach through an incredible journey uh, incredible humility, a willingness to lose, willingness to risk it all by coaching at this place or that place. It's no mistake that, you know, he's one of the better coaches in the world because he was willing to grab a duffel bag and just get beat up and pursue his dream until he got it. You know, there you go. That's a great point. I, I remember, I think I went to a clinic one time at University of Tennessee he was coaching for the Iowa Energy. That's where I remember him. And, and I go, and now he's, you know, coaches the Toronto Raptors. But you listen to him, you're exactly, he's, he's like you. When you listen to him, he's got a certain tone and just, I call it matter of factness to his voice. You listen to him, you know, in interviews and so forth. And he's also very humble. But um, he, he's, an, he's an unbelievable coach. He's, he's taking advantage of those situations, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's really worked his way up. Yeah, and then the other day, Kobe was in an interview, and then they asked him about failure. They used the word failure, and he sat up like somebody <laughs> had hit him with a cattle prod. And he looked right. right at whomever was interviewing, and he says, what are you talking about? I don't even know about that word. And the guy goes, what do you mean? You know, you don't know about that word. And he said, hey, man, that's just an opportunity for me. He said, I know that what's in my soul that I'm going to go through that firewall and I've got one more in me in terms of the way I work and what I'm going to do. And think about this. He takes everything that he ever did work-wise as a worker in basketball. And the next thing you know, he's standing where few have ever stood and they give him an Oscar or, you know, that award. He's holding that award for a documentary that he did well, what he did was he listened to whomever the producers were, said, do it this way, and he works his ring off, and the next thing you know, he's holding it. I mean, my God, how, how humbling is that? But, I mean, it gets back to the ability to be an unbelievable worker at whatever you're doing, sacrifice all the time for that endeavor, and then not reach your goal, and then you find out who you are. You know, and it's I don't care if it's music or if it's basketball or if it's the corporate world. At some point in time, you're going to get slapped down. And it's just the ability to say, you know what, here's what I learned from getting dropped. And here's how I'm going to apply that. And I'm not going to let any situation or person define me according to, OK, yeah, I fell flat on my face, you know, and you just keep going. 
but some people just can't do that. I mean, it's, it's too overwhelming. The failure, the dealing with it, I get it. I mean, it, it's not for everybody. Yeah, and I think, of course, I think nowadays coaching coaching kids these days, uh, and I this is my thirtieth year. Uh, I don't see a lot of parental guidance from parents accepting failure as positives, uh, where they can learn from it. Uh, I think to me that's the hardest thing in coaching. I think it's just a generation of, of kids who uh, have a hard time with failure, right, Mike? I mean, I yeah. don't know about you. You're the yeah. kids you teach. But you're probably dealing with the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, all those salmon swim up river at a certain time. Okay, so <laughs> you know the millennials, and you know the trail always leads to. I'm a millennial parent, so it, it, it leads to that. And then here's a, a a brick that's missing in the house, and the brick is a job. And so when you're a Division One coach, Division Two, which I've been. I've been division three. I've done that international coach, all of that. The one question that I like to ask those teams in that journey is who here has held a job? Well, last year I asked the question and there wasn't one hand that went up. So the problem in the rearing, by the time you're 18 and you've never held down a job is that means you've never paid taxes to the federal government. So why would the flag mean anything to you? And I could go ad nauseum into this topic. <laughs> But by the time you get them and they're missing that particular chip, then it only means that it's a coach's challenge to give that sense of uh, self-esteem, if you will, by working and describing what you're doing as a job, you know, and, and because they're eventually going to work a job. And so I don't know how any parent thinks that they're preparing their son or daughter for a job when they've never worked a job. I mean, that, that, that is just, you know, I don't comprehend it, you know, like, and so I'm not the perfect parent. That's not what I'm saying, but we did make our kids work a job and, and, and that was very, very important to us so that, and I think that the millennials are having a hard time and the parents because they missed that day in school where they, they insisted that their kid in their rearing had a job. I think it's, it's a fundamental piece that's really important. It makes it really difficult for coaches when you inherit a kid who's never held down a job because the issue of accountability and understanding that excellence is a trade-off to time-related endeavor and it hurts and rejection's all part of the process. And when you film baseball, basketball, football, it could be at a track meet and just film and be quiet and listen to the comments and film those parents that are, oh, are, are, are literally puking out negativity and either, you know, the coach is a village idiot or their kid is not doing the right thing. Um, you just want to give them a class in class. And also saying, hey, back off and let the process work. And, you know, I'm going to put it out there on this blog, just like I, I, I would say it. And I would challenge those parents to tell me anything that's good about just railing on your kid while he's playing and or the coach that, that's going to be positive. That something positive is going to come out of that. And so what my point is at basketball and coaching you're getting a lot of armchair pseudo 
parents that think they know, you know, about this, this, or this, but the parent isn't there for your 37th practice. They've never seen one of your practices and yet they're, they're an expert by the time they come to you with the, the complaint or they're, they're just beating the joy out of their kid because this is all about the wonderment and the joy of sport. And also uh, there's a guy that wrote a book called the joyous sport by Novak. And it's a wonderful book. It was written a long time ago, but my point back to you is, is that, yeah, I think that, that um, the whole culture of expectations, I call them ESPN expectations, but as we know, the math, whether it's basketball or soccer or whatever is against uh, your child. If you're, you know, have these dreams of your, your kid playing, you know, for a gold medal or whatever, I'm not saying don't have them, but each step of the way, you have to be realistic about your son or daughter's athletic ability uh, they're even their own appetite for it. Like the parents' appetite is much greater for that than it is the child's. And I find it just to be absolutely amazing. Some of the things that come out of mouths of parents that have never, ever seen the kid practice or, you know, understand the process and there's no value for it. That's well said. I got to tell you, that's well said. And, I have to live that every day. What do you recommend for high school coaches who have to deal with that? Do you recommend um, more meetings with parents, trying to educate them? What do you recommend for us high school coaches to monitor that and to hopefully the, the, the kids well, can, can that's, give that's us a better the, ear? Yeah, that's a whole podcast. But the, the, the broken down <laughs> part of, of that is that this is where this comes from, is that for a long, long time, uh, we would have uh, pizza night with coaches. And then we would throw that question out. And mostly they were high school coaches, get some beers, get a pizza, and then have a whiteboard and then jam on the whiteboard. Everybody had to own that whiteboard. And one of the things that's come out of what you're asking is the meetings are important because they're proactive. So the beginning meeting, it's amazing. The parents that are, are griping the most don't make the meeting. That's an interesting one, but in order for the coach to protect himself, one, but yeah. two is be proactive and, and, and have a, a line of communication is that you have to have things in writing, both electronically and hard copy of the meeting and the rules of, you know, it's an honor and a privilege for the kid to be a part of your program. And there is a standard. Not every kid can come in the door and stay in the, in the gym or stay there. There's got to be some sort of a standard. So get that out there, have a meeting and make be bold and brief on the meeting. And then, you know, at, give some time for questions, but say, okay, here are the well-stated expectations. Example given no parent, will approach a coach after a game. That is a no-no. It's in writing. We talked about that in the first meeting. So here comes the village idiot, and they're coming down right on top of the coach. And uh, well, I would need to talk to you now. No, sir. You know, we have a rule on that. And see, all of this is transferred to your AD and your principal. You know, but so before these rules come in, you float them by. Most of the time, the ADs go, yeah, that's fine. And the principal say, and now the principal is catching the heat, getting a knock on the door of the call. And now your writing and your rules have protected you. Well, because the principal may not have read them. And you say, well, you agreed to this 
on uh, August 16th. And here I have it. Now they get caught on and they're hoisted on their own petard. So my point is, is that, yes. And let's say you have three meetings. You have a meeting at the beginning of the year. You have a meeting around the holiday season. And then you have a wrap up meeting, you know, and you're beginning, middle and end. What you end up doing is out organizing the person who bitches all the time. You know, and right. what happens is the more organized you are with your communication and you have these three meetings, the more those people go to another program and take their kids somewhere else because, see, they can't handle the professionalism and the standard of it all. See, because the bottom line is, is that the kid is going to have the problems as an outcrop of the problems that the parent has in the home anyway. So you inherit all of that stuff that I would call it junk because the parent has unrealistic expectations for their kid or they didn't want their kid, you know, because they didn't get to play. We all suffer when our kid doesn't play. I had three. They all played high school sports, two played college sports competitively, blah, blah, blah. My daughter played club soccer, you know, and had a wonderful experience, but they were all in college. They all did it. And my point is, is that I would cringe if I ever was in the stands and was blurting out some of the stuff I hear blurted out. I mean, we just, my wife and I just didn't do it. We were there to support our kids, enjoy them. And if they didn't play and God knows there were years where our kids didn't play a lot and they just had to deal with it. And we, you know, we were able to, to listen to them and get them to the next spot and had a wonderful sport experience but it was a lot of times by watching what not to do. But, yeah, the, the, the coaches need to protect themselves. The coaches need to have well-organized, you know, meetings uh, the, there. And they also need to be able to say, no, no, we don't meet now. And I'm not going to be a knee-jerk coach at your behest because your kid's not playing or didn't get enough shots or whatever. But also the coach needs to understand is he can't, behind closed doors, be a monster you know, and berate the kid and whatever. Those days are gone. You know, you right. just, you're not going to be able to get away with that and just having a foul mouth. I mean, there wasn't anybody who cursed more in practice than me back in the day. I don't do it. You know, I, I had to wash my own mouth out. And every now and then I slip, of course. But, I, I mean, I just don't do it as a method now. It's gone. And I had to, you know, so I have – I have feet of clay. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not trying to be hypocritical here. What I'm saying is, is that the coach has to understand. And the other thing is, I, you know, it, it bothers me when a coach comes to me that's in high school and says, well, it's too hard and I'm going to give up. And I look right at the guy and I say, hey, hang on a second. You are the shining light. And this is everything that you're saying is true. But the fact of the matter is evaluate your own process because you've left yourself vulnerable to what's coming your way because you're passive aggressive on how you've chosen to deal with parents. You have to toughen up. You have to get more organized. And sometimes your, your, your AD and your principal are frogs. They're, they're fraudulent. And they are in the, in the way you have a collision. You have to go somewhere to coach. There's a guy out of Wisconsin. He called me about his son who's a brilliant coach. And all of the things lined up where the AD and the principal were just gutless and they didn't back them. Okay. Well, dude, you need to pack your bags and go coach somewhere else. Cause there's a place and there are kids that need you, but in that sandbox, 
and you don't get out of it and you're 28 years old, don't tell me that, you know, you're not good enough or the politics are too hard for you. They're going to be hard for, for you tomorrow in another place in another way. Don't quit. I know it's hard, but recalibrate. And if you need to pull up your tent, fold it up and keep your resume out there because the kids need guys and women like you. And sometimes you run into the wall. And it's amazing to me how many guys are quitting because of the parents now. And I know it's hard, but don't quit. You figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Figure it out. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I love what you're saying there. I mean, it, I know the coaches are going to be listening to this. Um, they're going to get a lot out of that because we have all dealt with it, right, Mike? So we have all gone through it. I think as we get older, we get wiser. And I think that you mentioned some great points, particularly about being thick-skinned, setting your standards, and enforcing those standards, right? I mean, really, you got to live – you got to fight for your culture, right? Uh, yeah, you have to fight for your culture. And I'll put out a little uh, uh, caveat here for coaches. When the superintendent's kid comes down the road and he or she's the resident spastic, all right, or right. the principal wants the, the son to, to play, or the, the AD has a friend who has money who wants that kid to be in your circle, beware. That is, I have heard more stories, horror stories with really great coaches who had great records and ran up and got a buoy knife in their back because of that situation. Well, my point is that just like you said, is, is that you wanted the money from this person and they could, you know, get hamburgers at McDonald's or they could get the uniforms and the sun is over there. There's a trade off. And when you don't ring that bell or you're going to participate in that kind of thing, which I get it, you know, it's tempting and that understand that's a very, very slippery slope. It's dangerous. And those are the situations, whether it's not having the meetings, whether it's not having it in writing, whether you didn't talk to your principal on a potential problem that's going to come your way the night before uh, the kid broke curfew, you were on the road whatever and we keep the information to ourselves no you you don't have to be a weasel but you have to document the information and you have to move it because you see that it potentially could be a problem and when you look back at how that person got fired that high school coach a lot of times quite frankly they they messed up professionally they didn't follow protocol or they wanted the money but they didn't want they didn't want what came along with the money. And a lot of times it's get, can get really nasty. So I think you need to go back to the mirror and look at yourself and quit just saying that it's mission impossible because one, the kids need you. And two is uh, you just might have to go somewhere else to coach, but I've heard guys quit and they said, well, there's no place for me. I'm old school. And you know, I like to do things right. Well, dude, I'm telling you, there's a place where they do do things right, or you're going to create that environment. Well, I had a job, a Division three job, and it was an awful job. It was terrible, all right? And so I know what it was like and with this problem or that problem or whatever. But we started from ground zero, and five years later, we were the number one team in the country. Okay, 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 fine. You got lucky, you, you know, I, I don't know. And then you go to another place and you do it again. 
All right. Now you go to another place and you get fired. Okay. It happens. My thing is, where's the vision of wanting to be for the kids, wanting to be a great teacher, wanting to change people's lives. Oh, well, you will tell the kid to get up off the ground, but you yourself can't take a good haymaker politically and get nailed or whatever it is and go for go. Why, why are you being a hypocrite? That's why certain coaches who espouse discipline, but when you watch them on the sidelines and they're coaching out of control, they're multiple technicals. They're just killing their kids when they come back to the bench. Well, you know, what happened to your discipline? And I remember a very famous coach who was doing crazy stuff on the sidelines. And I don't tell the guys when they ask me about that particular situation, I go, Hey, you don't go to him for discipline. You go to him for information. All right. Make distinctions. And so I think it's really, really important that you don't rule the coach out, but you understand that, Hey, I'm going to emulate the best of what that coach has. And this brings me back to losing your job or the parents or the politics of coaching this day and age. You do have to be thick skinned. You are going to catch a slap upside the head and you have to be prepared for it, but get back up. And because it's a beautiful game, the kids are still unbelievably great. You know, they're a lot of fun. They have problems. You're going to be dealing with problems. Every coach on any given day is going to have five problems come to his desk or her desk that she could not anticipate. You're a problem solver when you're a coach. (laughs) And some problems don't get solved on the day, but enjoy them. They're challenges. They're like chess matches. And you have to figure it out because if you don't, it won't get it won't get solved. And that's that that's the great thing about being a head coach. It, I see it as yeah, a, a great thing. Yeah, it is. And, and you have to know your why, right, Mike? I mean, you have to know why you coach, like you said. And it's if it's not the impact the kids, you need to find the other profession. Well, the right? other thing, too, is beyond the kids, because that's noble and it sounds right. good. But somewhere along the line, when you lay some up on that day, when you were a kid, you have to bring yourself back to why you played the game. You know, and the majority of us, the coach, played the game somewhere. doesn't mean that we're any good, but it means that there was a joy of lacing them up. And when you got your game uniform, and, I, you know, people go, oh, well, those days are gone. No, they're not. Hey, they may not uh, honor and value the uniform as much, but I'll guarantee you that when they're tiny and we have camp going on right now, and you look at those kids in their eyes, they're coming in there <laughs> wanting to do something, you know, and they're bright eyed and ready to roll and all of that. Well, you got to bring it back to your own heart because again, like you said, stuff happens in coaching. And if you can't bring it back to more than, you know, the people you're coaching to your own heart, you're screwed because it's not enough to be able to say, well, I'm out there for noble reasons to see and be for the kids you first have to be, bring it back to your own innocence and why you started out playing the game or you wanted to coach the game for how it made you feel, you know, because when it's dark, you need to be able to go back to a great spot in your soul and say, Hey man, Hey, this is, this is sacred ground. This is awesome. And this is why I do it because that rainy day is not going to change. But what you can do is pull back on why you started coaching in the first place. 
I mean, you know, this will be my 40th year and they all haven't been beauties. I'll tell you that. And my point is, is that I just think about, you know, when I got to lace them up and when I got to go to practice and, you know, the guys I was playing with and all of that, I mean, and if that doesn't get her, get, get her ticking, then nothing will. Yeah. And the kids can read your passion, right? You can't fake that. Right. I mean, no, they I mean, know like when my, you're into it. Right. It's like <laughs> this podcast, you know, I could measure myself. I could lower my voice. I could be whatever. And I, you know, I, I can put that jacket on, but my point is that <laughs> I don't want to do that. I, I, what I want to do is just put stuff out there and then grab, I'm not having a go at any parent. I'm not having to go at any coach. I'm not having to go at any player. What I am saying is, is that in the podcast or whatever, be yourself, you know, and be passionate. And if people can feel that, then that's all I care about. I don't care about being, you know, Pete Newell or John Wooden or John Chaney or whatever. I just, you know, and I want, I want the young guys that I have on my staff to be themselves. I don't want them to be me. I want them and their personality to come out and grab the knowledge and the methodology, of course, of Wooden and Newell and those other guys that were great. But I also tell them, hey, you know, if you're soft-spoken, be soft-spoken. You know, it's perfectly going to be okay and you're, 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 as long as you stay in your own shoes. But when you start trying to put other guys' shoes on, you're screwed. You know, you're absolutely screwed. My, I only have a, I know you're a busy guy and so forth. And I know you have some, some obligations. Um, you have worked for some great head coaches, Lou Olson, George Carl, Steve Lab, and Ernie Kent, of course, Pete Newell. I mean, what have you, George Carl, what, <laughs> George Carl. I mean, you got to love George Carl. I mean, he's always one of my favorites. Absolutely. Um, love Absolutely. Love him. Yeah. What did, what, because I know you have a certain way of teaching the game just from studying you and so forth. What did you gain from these guys that have had? So you, you have adapted to your philosophy. One is be yourself. You know, there are a lot of people that say you need to change and you need to do this. And I think that's a short term fix. I, I just think that when you're starting with your own personality, that you're start your head starting. You know, and don't try to be somebody else. Second is, is that have an open mind, you know, keep your mind open because there's more to learn. I mean, there's just so much more to learn, but a lot of guys will get into a position. Well, okay. I got chapter one and chapter 10 and I'm ready to roll. No, uh, -uh, there's a next chapter. And so keep an open mind. Three is methodology, understand concepts, study concepts and study methodology instead of plays and looking for, you know, the, the, these Rubik's cubes things that, you know, you're trying to do. Don't make a mystery of the game. Keep it simple, stupid. You know, if you know something, bring it to the floor and rep it out. If you don't, don't mess around with it because under pressure, you're going to run from it. So I see coaches, well, I'm going to look at this film and I'm going to implement this system over here and transition. You know, and the next thing you know, you, 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 you got your head on backwards. Earlier, you asked me a question about jump stops and pivots and the fundamentals. Yes, sir. Okay, now let's go to Villanova. In the game of basketball, pro, all right, uh, international, all the way through to high school, 
there is nobody, and it's not even arguable, with the ball in their hand that does a better job than Jay Wright at getting his guys to fill a gap with penetration and sit down in the paint, or if they get stopped or walled up early, where they make a jump stop and they'll either shoot it or they'll pivot, pivot, and pass it back out, or you know, just the fundamentals of that jump stop. And so what I'm saying is I'm learning from Jay Wright. You know, I listened to him talk, and he was at a clinic five years ago, and he said, I threw out all my transition drills. So I'm just sitting there intently writing. I, I was writing, and I raised my head, and I go, what? You know, and he said, I figured out how much time we waste in terms of the game. And we look at the analytics, and we saw how much we scored in transition. And he said it was quid pro quo. It was insane. And we all start our, 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 our year off with this new transition thing or a new transition drill or whatever. And then actually how we score against, uh, like Doug Mitchell is a, a local coach here at Bishop Montgomery. I haven't seen a better practice coach in my life. I mean, I, I give that guy full credit in how he does his practices. He is brilliant. I love the way he coaches. But nonetheless is that, you know, he – Barely does any transition. You know, John Chaney didn't, didn't do it. Didn't do it. But my point is you can do it and good for you. It's not my point, but I I'm learning by watching Jay Wright, keeping an open mind, you know, keeping it simple. And Jay Wright said, I became a better coach when I started throwing things away and simplifying and working on detail. You know, and he said, hey, I just kept these blocks of what the game was offensively, what the game was defensively, and we just worked on it and made a competition out of it like you. You know, you said, hey, I like the scrimmage, I dissect what came of it, break it down, clean it up, go back to scrimmaging. Kids love that. I think that's brilliant. And so in the NBA, that's what you've got to do. Because they'll give you 90 minutes in the NBA here and and." They want to go up and down or they want to dry run and then they'll go with half court and then you go full. And that's an NBA practice. There are these little chunks you do. You shoot a lot in the NBA. But my point is that back to the coaches, boil it down, one of the simplicity with detail. And if you get too fancy, that's when things get really nasty, you know? So I, I think that those are some, some simple things, but, keep learning, keep asking questions. I think that's the, the closing it off as far as my answer is all those coaches I worked for, they were really curious about how they asked questions, you know, whether it was recruiting. Lute Olson was one of the best recruiters along with George Raveling that I was ever around. Those two together, you know, phenomenal recruiters. And you say, well, what did they have in common? their ability to ask one more question. They were phenomenally getting information from a player that could be in Minnesota or New York or whatever. Coach Raveling was one, charming, smart, authentic. But the thing that I thought where it separated him and Lute Olson was the ability to ask and get information from a player that no other coach had asked them. So I, I think that as a coach, you want to ask good questions. Yes, and we need to be asking more questions at practice, right, Mike? I mean, I don't think we do enough of that. I know it's kind of another topic, but um, no, it's I don't not. think we do You're enough right. of that. Because what you get is you get engagement. So when a kid turns the ball over, stop the practice and say, what were you thinking there, Mike? 
And then you say, no, seriously, tell me why you went across your body to the left-hand side when your shooter was on the right side and you were on the right side of the midline. Now, he'll say, hey, coach, I saw him stumble and he was about ready to fall over. Okay, fair enough. All right, and then uh, I was bobbling the ball, so I looked down and da-da-da-da-da. You say, well, Mike, were you going too fast maybe? And we said, pace the ball up the floor. Don't hurry the ball up the floor, right? Yeah. And then if you'd have stutter-stepped, he would have regained his footing, right? Yeah. Okay. And if you want that pass, how about go between your legs and dribble the ball left-handed and get on the other side of the midline. That'll slow time down and it'll slow the decision down. And now we have a better decision. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, okay. Well, let's try that again. We're going to put you in the same situation. Go. You know, and now you've got him working with you. There it is. Yeah, decision making, right? right. <laughs> I mean, just and that that is not taught enough. And that's one of my emphasis this year is to really get my kids working on decision making, but through their own means, not by me telling them. So yeah, that's well, that's one it, of my goals. Yeah, I and I, I there's nothing wrong with telling them, coach. I mean, yeah, you know, don't don't give away, you know, the the baby with the bathwater. You know, you can still tell them stuff and then engage them and then go and do all of that in one minute. And now, now other people sure. are going to learn from that. And now you've got your stake in it, too, because this thing on entitlement and then this other thing about, OK, you know, they're entitled and they're acting this way. Well, OK, well, how are we going to get the entitled one? to listen to, you know, the adjustment. So you put your stake down on that person and you say, Hey, I need your feedback. And now you're taking them off the entitlement pedestal. And now you're transferring them into a little bit of a position of I'm hearing your voice. And now you go and you're, you're helping that kid get away from that nasty issue to, like you said, participating with you but yet you're kind of nudging and directing them to what you're eventually going to get pissed off about anyway, <laughs> you know, if they keep making that mistake. So you don't have to right. give up your personality and the things that are demanding, but it's a different way of mastering how to get the information from the kid and engage him, the young man, the young woman, in what you want him to do. And it's all fun. It's cooking at the stove without a cookbook. And I mean, it's, it, it, you know, once you have the basics down and you've got your garlic and you've got your butter and you've got your onions and your green peppers and the Holy Trinity, dude, you can go anywhere with that stuff. And my, my point is same thing with coaching, but don't leave those things that you know are going to lead to winning and or losing on your decision-making. And that's why on decision-making, the simpler the system, the better the decisions and then once those good decisions are made, then you can add some more information. But what the problem is, we go in grandiose. And I think you got to go into your first day and coach in a minimalist way where you're always dealing with decision making. Because when I watched Cheney coach, he was going five on five all the time. He did a little bit right. for about 15 to 20 minutes to 30 minutes where he went guard forward work. But then it was five on five. And then he would work out of the five on five. And it was all about decision making. Offense was about spacing for him and not turning the ball over. And third was do your job. So he had the bigs on the block. They stayed on the blocks. They used a 32 set. And then he would teach push-pull, spacing, 
decision making and then he would add to it and then teach the bigs how to come on up to the elbow but he wouldn't do that for a month and now he can work on the important stuff of a ball security and decision making and that was everything to him and then on the defensive end his whole thing was you know everybody get back protect the rim protect the paint and then contest everything but don't play your the ball so tight that you foul or that you allow the guy to go by you and I mean, it was about, you know, it was about, you know, the wall before the wall even had a description like that. It was a five man wall. And, you know, he found that the zone was the best way to do that. I'm not suggesting that for somebody else. I'm just saying that when I watched master coaches and Cheney's one of those guys, it's certainly a master coach and what he did, Hall of Famer, all that stuff. I looked at him and it was all about simplicity with detail. And don't you think, Coach, that reason why coaches don't do a lot of five-on-five is they want to look like they're breaking things down and teaching a lot, where many times the best teaching is in a game-like setting. I know you still got to drill. Is that is that part of the problem with a lot of coaches? They okay, over-drill? Let's, let's just for fun say that we're going to take all drills away from the coach. <laughs> and so the only thing that you can do – all right um, – is is either go four on four or five on five all right what four on four does for you all right is it creates spacing more space on the floor so let's say that you play all your games you know in the first half hour once they're warmed up four on four so because that space will expose you both offensively and defensively so now you do that and then you go to five on five and you say, you know what, I'm going to have a note card, and I'm going to write down three things, and the only thing I'm going to do is coach four-on-four four, half-court, and we're going to say, hey, you got to have four passes, and you've got to be outside the three-point line, and if you pass, you have to rim cut and then get out of there and fill an open spot. There are your rules, and then you play, and you play for a half hour, and you say, I'm going to write down the three things that we need to be better on tomorrow. All right. Now you're done with your four on four half court and then you go full court and say you go for 10 minutes. Okay. Now you're at 40 minutes and you write down three things. There are six comments that you write down. Now you go five on five half court. Okay. Whatever action you wanted to do and you say, run it, play, you're going to make some mistakes. And now let's say you play for 15 minutes. Okay, you write down three things. Now you got three note cards, three things on each note card. Now you go for another 10 minutes and you go full court. And you say, okay, here's what I want full court. One thing on offense, one thing on defense, go. Now you write down three things, there's your practice. And now you reshape your practice as to according to your needs. It's going to give you multiples of your talent who can dribble the ball, who shouldn't have the ball in their hand. Quite frankly, it's not an equal opportunity game. It's not an equal opportunity business. You know, some kids are better than others. And now on role decoration, part of being clever with the millennials is you don't have to tell them, well, you can't touch the ball. It's just like if you had a post guy who doesn't have hands, anytime the ball goes ball side, move them away on a cross pick. You know, okay, well, that's clever. And now you don't say anything to the kid. You know, and my point is, is that, you can go out of the hole and never drill and be fine. 
if you if that's what you believe in. It's okay. Yeah, I just love that because I really believe in that theory. Um, some of my best practices are actually all four on four, just with the spacing and how we run our offense. So everything's about emphasis. Yeah, it's, it's more about emphasis than yeah. it is drills. And what happens is you get a headache. You get it. You get tired as a coach with uh, a heavy-handed A, B, C, D, E, F, and you wear yourself out and you can't see clearly. And see, clarity is everything in coaching. When you go in, you know, um, I always say this, when you lose a game and you don't block out and you go back the next day and you say, by damn, we're going to do a blockout drill for a half hour. And you get better <laughs> at blocking out. Well, what happens right. it, it, a lot of times when we go in with the – of the guys that go and lecture and they say, well, you know, every practice I ever did is in a file, either on your phone or, you know, in a notebook. And they say, yeah, on day, you know, 72, this is practice 72. I'm not, you know, I think it's good to have records, but what I also think it's better. And what I learned from Cheney is allow yourself to actually see players in real time five on five or four on four, watch them play. And then if there are mistakes, take things away. Addition by subtraction is your answer. So let's say we're coming down the floor and we're having a certain, certain type of turnover. We have a high, low action. All right. Every time we get into a high, low catch, we throw that ball and it gets turned over. We'll take the high, low out of your offense for a while. And until you can go down the floor and you watch them, and they move the ball till they get a really good shot. Well, maybe we don't need high-low for the first third of the season. And my point is that knowing what you want before you go to the gym and seeing clearly as to what the players are doing, five-on-five and four-on-four allows you to do that. All right? My second point is this. Every drill and every little segment that a player plays in and a team plays in, what are the five or six ingredients that a good drill has? And it's one time, two is score. Three is offense to defense, they end the line, or defense to offense, they end the line. Rotation. Four is rebounding. Every drill has rebounding in it, so it should be a part of your, your emphasis. And then finally, the kicker here is advantage, disadvantage drills. So now you're, let's say you go four on four, all right, and you say the next day you, you went for like, say, 20 minutes the day before. Well, go half of that and say we're going to go 10 minutes of three on four, and you, you flip it to defense. And you play a three on four game, half court, and you do that for 10 minutes. Well, guess what? In all offenses are going to be defense at some point in time, and you're going to have to rotate. Regardless of what Jeff Van Gundy says on TV, all right, at some point in time, you have to rotate. You can't just plug and get back to your own and hold on to shooters. There's going to be a time where you blitz a, uh, uh, an on ball on the side. 
and your guys have to know how to rotate or they get beat and somebody else helps on the ball and then you're in a position to rotate. Now, do you want to rotate a lot? Probably not. The better the, the competition, the less you want to rotate because you're going to get burned on that stuff because the players are too good. But my point is that advantage-disadvantage drilling and or coaching uh, is very, very important, and you do that every day. So let's say you're a five-on-five five coach. You never do any drills. You never do any four-on-four. We'll play some five-on-four. Okay, now let's say you get a stop or you go made and miss and you start on defense. Now you bring the offense back four versus five and you tell the other team you have to be in a two, three zone. All right. Now they come down and four versus five and they learn how to attack a zone at one, but two is they learn how to attack it at a disadvantage. They don't have as many guys. It's amazing how much more the ball moves with four versus five than five versus four. It's crazy. Or five versus nuts, but it happens. And so you learn these things, you know, when you coach. And so, you know, I know I've gone on here, but if I'm listening. I love it. The only thing I'm going to do is (laughs) say, hey, I'm going to listen to this podcast and I'm going to take away three things. So the reason I'm putting that out there is that I think it's imperative that any coach anywhere know the five or six things that any drill should have. And I got that from Bobby Knight at his academy. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's timeless. Keep time on a drill. And he, he was a big five to 10 minute guy. Keep a score on it. You got to have winners and losers. His third point was always have an element of confusion. You know, like you blow the whistle and you have a change and you have to go to the other end. Everybody knows that little drill, okay? But you have an element because the game gives you things of surprise. You know, you you want things to happen, but your ability to be able to defensive transition off your turnovers is key, absolutely key. And so that's going to happen. So in your drilling, you have, you know, a, a little whistle drill where they have to drop the ball or whatever you create, some anarchy. Then you go, again, to your rebounding, you go to your rotation, you go to your advantage-disadvantage. Well, there you go. Well, it doesn't have to be those six. It could be somebody's six that they feel is important. I'm not lobbying for those. I'm just saying, think it through, because when you play five-on-five, you've got to go into that saying, this is what I want to do. You know, this is what I want to get out of this 10 minutes. Because if you're not thinking that way, then you can't get there. Yes, I mean, you, said, you said some great things, and I, I love the advantage-disadvantage because I think many times that four team of four will play cut, play a lot harder than that team of five. I find that almost all the time, even on the defensive end, they'll close out, they'll cover Absolutely. for each other better uh, at a disadvantage. I mean, that, that's perfect. It's a game of disadvantage, and it's a game of advantage. You know, um, again, it's a game of chess. So all of a sudden you make a great move with your queen and you take the knight, but you better be able to leverage that situation because a lot of times, you know, they'll, they'll take a deep breath in the game of basketball and you're coming down, say three on two and it gets screwed up and you know, you better be able to take advantage of the advantage and you better be able to cover somebody's rear end and you're on a disadvantage until help arrives. And I mean, that's just the game because the players are so friggin' good yeah. now 
that you're going to be caught in a disadvantaged situation. And, and then there's where your coaching comes in. It could be foul trouble. It could be that they're a great transition team and they've drilled on that and it's their lifeblood. Well, that's what's exciting about, you know, you say, okay, we're going to pull you off the boards. And as soon as, uh, you know, we shoot it, you're back. And you've been a big three on the boards, two back person, and now you're running three back. Okay, fine. Okay, now they're running. They kick your ass again. All right, let's take everybody off the offensive boards. That's a great timeout. You know, and you've made a nice adjustment. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but you're addressing the issue. You know, and that's, that's, that's good stuff. Yes, and coaches need to be making game-like adjustments during the practice. They need to treat the practice and like a game. At any given time. Both With timeouts, everything. Right? Yeah. Timeouts. Situation play. You know, have a whiteboard somewhere and immediately break from your practice and say, okay, seven seconds, it's our ball, side OB, and you diagram something right out of your rear end that you've never diagrammed before. They need to be able to handle that and then put people in different spots. Take your best score, and let's say that you were going to screen for them like they did, uh, Kerr did, uh, or uh, they did for Kerr, and, uh, or for Kerr did for Curry. And uh, on that, yeah. that little, uh, you know, backside skip and a split action on the, the, what became the weak side. And he came around. He was wide open. What a great little play. But, you know, they had rehearsed that, I think, because I heard him or I watched him look at Ronnie Adams or somebody like that and say, this is what we're going to do or Mike Brown. And uh, then they ran that action. Well, if you're not doing that in practice, coach, then it's going to be hard to do it in a game because they've got to be used to, hey, you know, we position this game to win it. All the money's on the line. All right, let's run our zipper action with a mid pick and roll, but let's slip it this time. And we're going to clear the weak side. You're going to skip it back to a shooter who's going to be in that mid, make that three, you know, and now the kid, you know, gets it and he fires it and he misses it. It doesn't matter. What matters is you gave them their best chance to win. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Hey, Coach, my last question. I sure appreciate you, man. Just, I mean, you're just you know spilling your guts today, man. Sharing with us, man. I love this. Uh, I always learn so much from you. Um, corrections. I want you to just give me your feedback. I correct this way. I will take a kid. I, I have an assistant coach. Her main. I coach girls. Her main job is to take an individual. If they're not blocking out, she takes them out and she does what we call reminders. She'll teach them. She'll have them show them what the technique is. And then they'll do a punishment where that's a sprint. And then they come them back into the game when the team's at a disadvantage. That's how I teach in my practice. Give me your feedback on that. Um, I think that uh, segments of that are important. And there are times where, if you've got a lot of bodies in there, it gives you an opportunity to, you know, sub that person out and put somebody in or, or, or switch jerseys so that you have these different combinations. So I love the disadvantage. You know, I do. Uh, but, you know, it, that has a, a shelf life on it. Uh, you know, I do that sometimes, but, you, you know, through the entire practice, um, I'm not sure that I'd be willing to do that because I, I, I think that it's I can see more value. And, and, and using different player combinations because you're never going to do that in a game. So um, I'm, I, I believe yeah, in it, as you yes. know, 
but, but so it has a shelf life. I would use it for a segment in practice. Now, when I'm correcting on that, I love what you said. So that's in the books. And then also is entering with praise, prompt, and lead. Hey, here's what you're doing well, Eli. All right. You're, you're really running hard down the floor. But on the weak side, when we're shooting on that backside, I need you to run to the tip of the rim. That's your offensive board. You're standing and watching. All right. Bang. All right. Can you do that, Eli? Yeah, I got that, coach. All right. Let's roll. So, you know, and, and then I'm not, you know, there that. So that's another way of doing it. And then there's the third way. And the third way is just get her done. You're pissed off. Forgive yourself for being angry. But there are times where you just clench your jaw, you know, and bang on a second. There's a 50-50 ball. You didn't get down on the floor for that. Somewhat cowardly. You need to get down. And I don't, for me, I don't think there's anything wrong with addressing it here and there. Very sparsely. But getting to there, because if you're really on the other side of the equation, you're fair that when you're going bone on bone, you know, and you need that person to, to, to get that. Because I don't think that somebody's going to get on the ground on a 50-50 ball if you're not intense and you're not sweating or you're passionate in your practice. I, I just think that there's going to be a volume to you, and I think there's going to be a time and place as long as it's, it's few and far between. And if you didn't like the way you did that, forgive yourself. Don't do it again, you know, in terms of addressing that particular individual. But I will guarantee every coach that's listening to this podcast that when you're on the sideline and you've done all these wonderful things with defensive transition, for example, you're going to be the very coach that's going to be yelling, get back. <laughs> After all of that work, I go to games all the time. And the one thing I, I hear coaches say is they want kids, players, young men, young women to sprint back on D-trans. But my point is, ideology-wise, sometimes you just got to grit your jaw and say, hey, we got to get her done and get your rear end on the floor to dig that 50-50 ball out first or rotate over and take that charge. Right, Coach? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm writing my notes down here and so forth. Um, but I, I love how you're honest with me. And that's why I, I don't think enough coaches don't ask enough questions. And I, I love like an expert like yourself kind of give me that honest feedback. We need to do more I of that, right? So. I mean, I just think the coaches pick on themselves. And I think that, you know, we want to be better teachers and be more articulate and keep tempo in our practices. We don't want to have meltdowns and, and dehumanize any player. I mean, that, that's not my goal or whatever. But the scoreboard has no conscience, and there is teams that we say, see play incredibly hard. All right? Well, when I go look at a Hurley coach team or I go look at um, Texas Tech, when the doors close, that – practice and they're coaching hard it doesn't mean they are are insulting their players but there is an expectation you're going to get down in a stance at texas tech you're going to play the leads you're going to pin on the sideline and you're not going to let that ball go middle and if you do there's a price to be paid and you know i don't care if it's the great little league all our team or it goes to the world series if you go find the coach that coach is organized 
and he's no joke. He's got a look or, or she's got a look in her eyes that you've never seen before. And that's a common look that when I've gone and been a, 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 a truth seeker and information seeker, I, there's a certain disposition about excellence. And I think you can be really good to your players, but I don't think you ever bypass the demands of what it's going to take to be a champion. And I don't think you should take a backward step on that, no matter what anybody says about, well, you know, uh, the players like you at the end of every practice. That's a virtual impossibility. And if you're looking for the like me kind of jacket, then you are not going to be a championship coach. <laughs> that, that is a simple fact. Coach, well said. I just want to tell you again, I appreciate I appreciate you being honest with me and kind of sharing with me. And I, I think every coach should in their in their library should have many of the videos and books that you have on your website. And I think the price you have for those is is a great price. Ten dollars, fifteen dollars for some of the materials that you have, particularly on your practice plans. I know I have it in my library, and I want every other coach to have it. Um, how can the coaches get a hold of you, and how can they get access to those videos and those uh, your blog and anything stage, else? The best way to get A to B at warp speed is to email me, and then I transfer that. That's the best way, and then we can go from there. And then we get we humanize a bit with the conversation because I have that guy call. And then you get a little bit of back and forth. So the email address is uh, capital M, Michael, everything else, lowercase dot, capital D, everything else, lowercase Dunlap, at lowercase LMU dot EDU, lowercase. Uh, nothing else needs to be given. Michael dot Dunlap at LMU dot EDU. And we'll take it from there. Thanks. Coach, thanks for sharing. Taking, a, I know you. I, yeah, uh, thank well, you so much, man. You're a true mentor. It's an honor. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's an absolute honor. Um, I love high school coaches, and don't let Kevin anybody dehumanize themselves by saying I'm just a high school coach. They're my heroes. I look at the the. the I look at great school coaches, great school teachers. I look at junior high. All of those people. The, the pyramids flipped and see the base of the pyramid are your heroes. They are the people that are get her done as far as education goes or coaching. And then we inherit a lot of great coaching. By the time they come to us, we've had a, tr a ton of tremendous coaches. So I would just say to the listeners, you know, if you want to find great coaches that have great humility and get all the information you want, seek out the really good high school coach. You know, forget about the college guy, forget about the NBA guy. But if you really want the information, you know, just look in your area for the great high school coach and great high school teacher. And coaches should cross-reference and go to uh, high school or grade school teachers that have been teachers of the year, and you'll find out everything you need to know about coaching practice. I mean, because they got tricks, and they're really, really good with how they do what they do. But I love high school coaches. Coach, man, I, I sure appreciate that. That was well said. Um, thank you again. I, and um, 
I will actually, uh, I will send you the podcast. I will share it and so forth. But many coaches are going to be contacting you. A lot of these guys are my friends, and uh, they're going to get a lot out of what you shared. Coach, thank, thank you so you. much. Bye, Coach. Hey, coaches, this is Nick Bartlett with Dr. Dish Basketball, and you're listening to the Championship Vision Podcast with Coach Kevin Furtado. Make sure to check us out at drdishbasketball.com and on Twitter and Instagram at at drdishbball for daily basketball drills, tips, inspiration, and how we've revolutionized the basketball shooting machine over here at Dr. Dish. Also mention this podcast and you will receive an exclusive discount on your next Dr. Dish purchase. Thanks for tuning in. Hey coaches, this is Matt Smith, the president of United Basketball Clinics. I want to make sure you know about two fantastic clinics going on this fall. First, the Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic in Knightstown, Indiana, August 23rd and 24th at the legendary Hoosier Gym where the movie was filmed. We have a great lineup, Vance Wahlberg, Dave Love, Doug Porter, John Kaufman, Mike Neighbors. Every session is on the floor in the legendary gym with players being used for demonstration. You can't beat this clinic. Also, we have this Peach State Clinic in Alpharetta, Georgia on September 28th. Hernando Planels from Duke, Charmin White, Gene Durden, Alan Whitehart, the staff from Georgia State University. It's a phenomenal lineup. Many topics that all high school, middle school, and youth coaches can learn from. And again, these sessions are on the floor. Please visit unitedbasketballclinics.com. Take advantage